Amos 6, 4 through 8. Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore shall now be the first to go into exile, and the revelry of the loungers shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, says the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Today is the last day that we turn our attention to famous Amos. And don't get me wrong, this isn't like the last lesson that he has for us. He's got a lot more to teach us, and I hope that you will continue to read the book of Amos. But read it carefully. It has been said of the book of Amos that if you like him, you don't understand him because he's talking to you. So the past couple of weeks, we've been exploring uh, certain themes out of Amos, uh, but there's been one common thread throughout it all. And so I want to ask you, if, uh, if you could indulge me for a moment, what would you say the theme of Amos is? I'll give you a hint but while, while you're thinking about it. We started with the, the sermon, Care for the Poor. We went on to corrupt leadership. Then we addressed superficial worship. And today, if you looked in your bulletin, you'll see we're talking about materialism. So considering those four things, what would you say is the common theme of Amos? Selfishness, greed, certainly. What else do we have? Care for the outcast, yes. Warnings, Warnings absolutely. Justice. Justice, yes. Yes, some admonishing as well. Yes, absolutely. I think these are all fair themes for, for Amos. Uh, Amos is one who is going to challenge people, right? Amos, is, Amos doesn't hold back either. Uh, he's often been called the prophet of woe because he uses a lot of woe to you, so-and-so, like a lot of woe to you, so-and-so. Uh, and he's calling people out. And he starts with, if, uh, if we go back to our first lesson on care for the poor, he calls out the wealthy. Then our next one is we address corrupt leadership. He calls out people in power. From there, we went into superficial worship, and we looked at how Amos is calling out those who claim to follow God, the religious. Today, we're going to look at how Amos calls out the comfortable. Do you feel comfortable in your life? I do. I feel like I've got a pretty comfortable life. It hasn't always been that way, sure, but even still, even when it wasn't always comfortable, I still think it was... It could have been worse. But here's the question I want us to really consider today. 
Why does Amos call out these people for the suffering of others? Why does Amos call out the wealthy, the people in power, the religious, and the comfortable for the suffering of others? Whose fault is it really? I mean, whatever happened to the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Isn't that what we were told that you're responsible for you and nobody else is responsible for you and you're not responsible for anyone else. You need to take care of yourself and do the best you can. And if you're in positions of suffering, well then you're the reason you're there, right? I don't know about you, but that's a lot of the uh, motif that I kind of latched onto growing up. That uh, you should take the initiative to pull yourself out of suffering situations. Amos takes a very, very different approach as he calls out the wealthy, the people in power, the religious, and the comfortable. And he does so because as early as Genesis chapter 4, we see that the whole motif of pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you're responsible for only you is garbage. Genesis chapter 4, Cain has just murdered Abel. And God approaches Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? And what does Cain respond with? Am I my brother's keeper? And the obvious answer is yes, of course you are. Yes, you're supposed to take care of your brother. That's kind of what it means to be in a family. That's kind of what it means to be human. Yes, of course you're responsible. And the answer continues in Leviticus chapter 19, where we have that, uh, that great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And note the, uh, the ending part of that, as yourself. In other words, the same way you treat yourself, love also your neighbor. And you know, of course, Jesus gets confronted with, well, who is my neighbor, really? And uh, the answer comes out to be um, everyone. And it continues whenever we get to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John, I guess, but I don't like John, so we're going to leave him out. Actually, for our purposes today, just Matthew, Mark, and Luke with the story of the rich young ruler because John is so careless with his writing that he leaves out this uh, profound story. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him all of the commandments you know, that he was to follow. And the rich young ruler is a good Jew and he says, my Lord, all of these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus says, you, have, you lack one thing. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. And the rich young ruler went away very sad because he was very rich. He had a lot that he had to get rid of to inherit eternal life. It's this understanding that everybody is responsible for everybody. And don't let that overwhelm you too much. We do this one person at a time, of course. But the people who are most responsible for those who are in suffering situations are the people who have the capacity to do something about it. And I want to challenge you for a moment to consider, am I that person? 
Do I have the capacity to do something about it, even for one person? Because if so, we are the responsible people. In each section of this in Scripture, and believe you me, this is not, these, are, these three are not the only references to it, it challenges us to ask, are we so short-sighted that we can't see how the suffering of others is inherently our responsibility? Another way to ask this is, are we Marie Antoinette? Let's take a moment here and look at the French Revolution. And I feel a little bit daunted talking about this because I have two French experts in the room. Uh, The French Revolution, uh, who can tell me how it started? I imagine at least two people can. What's that? Yes. Yes, uh, which came out of the, the, uh, I can't say it in French, but the General Assembly. I don't know how to say that in French. <laughs> yes, what, what else was going on that led up to the French Revolution? What's that? Extreme poverty, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, uh, it's been, you know, thoroughly examined, but by and large, it's, uh, the causes of the French Revolution are pointed back to a failure of the monarchy to manage social and economic inequality. So the king, during the, uh, well, at least the, at the beginning of the French Revolution, was none other than Louis the Sixteenth. How about that? I got that right. <laughs> I didn't pay a whole lot of attention in history growing up, uh, so, and I'm paying for it these days. And uh, he had uh, his queen named Marie Antoinette. And Marie Antoinette was known for her taste in fine things, along with a little bit of a disconnect from the common people. She's uh, very much of the aristocracy, very much uh, was one to commission very expensive pieces, art, uh, structures uh, from well-known builders and artists. And upon hearing of the extreme poverty that was facing her people, upon hearing that there might not have been any bread left for the peasants to eat, she is known, or at least attributed to the phrase, let them eat cake. A little bit of a uh, mistranslation. I think the original is actually uh, let them eat brioche, yeah, which is like a little bit different than cake, but whatever, it's still fancy bread. Uh, <laughs> and, and this phrase attributed to her comes out of this understanding or this notion that she was so disconnected from, from the suffering of the people that whenever the people didn't have access to one of the most common things that you could ever find in France, bread, that she says, well, give them some brioche. Let them eat cake. In other words, she couldn't understand her place, her role in alleviating the suffering of the people. Now, I will say, uh, by and large, this uh, attribution to her has been debunked. She probably isn't the one who said that. Uh, Rousseau, the philosopher, is actually quoted writing this down like, uh, I don't know, something like 10 years before she was even born or something like that. Uh, so it's 
might be even more attributed to another uh, great princess, as Rousseau describes her, who is uh, uh, Maria Teresa, a princess of Spain. And Maria Teresa, uh, from Spain, ends up marrying Louis XIV, I think it was. Thank you, Will, for that head nod. <laughs> uh, as a marriage to kind of quell the, rebel the uh, war that had risen up between Spain and France. And uh, she wasn't the most beloved by the people because she didn't really do her royal duties. She was very concerned with her children and her children's comfort. And so this phrase, uh, let them eat cake, is actually more attributed to her, but when she says it, I'm not gonna try to say the French, uh, she's saying more of, let them eat the crust of the pies, something to that effect. Uh, the pate, if you will. <laughs> that's, as, that's as far as my French goes. And even still, uh, some people think that Rousseau, the philosopher who documented this, might have just made it up. But nevertheless, this phrase has endured for going on three centuries now simply because of what it says about the human condition. When people are extremely wealthy and comfortable, they're completely blind to the suffering of those in need. Ignorance is bliss is another way to put this one. Because what we don't know, we don't know. And what we don't know, we can't speak to. And so if there is no bread for the peasants, of course we're going to say, well, let them have some cake. You know, a little extra sugar is not going to hurt them. There's no bread. How on earth are they going to get cake? Right? We can kind of see this in hindsight, but I want to challenge us and ask us, do we know what the people here in Mobile, who are below the threshold of the poverty line, what they are going through? Have you sat with the people who work three jobs to provide for their kids? Have you spoken with those who, no matter how many jobs they apply for, they still can't seem to get it simply because of one feature of their person? Do we know what the poor are truly going through? Those who thrive in excess and materialism end up being oblivious to the plight of their suffering neighbors. Excess, as it were, has only ever been proven beneficial in one area, compassion. In just about anything else, there is too much of a good thing. There is too much. Excess has well, time and time again, shown to be what leads to suffering. And in many different ways. I don't know if uh, you all know this, but the second largest Mega Millions jackpot was won uh, yesterday, two days ago, Friday night. Uh, Friday night by a person in uh, Illinois. Uh, and uh, this got me thinking back to a statistic that suicide rates are actually incredibly high among lottery winners. I thought that, you know, having that much wealth could really make things a lot better in a person's life. I guess not. Excess. It's 
not necessarily a good thing in any area. And so our concluding section of famous Amos this week calls out those who were too comfortable in their excess. Amos chapter 6 begins, uh, verse 1, uh, which we didn't cover today, but is an important verse of this uh, uh, to give context to this passage. Amos says, woe, oh there it is again, the prophet of woe, woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and for those who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Now what's interesting about this is that not only is he calling out the people of a different nation for all of their excess, he's calling out his own people. If you recall, Amos is a prophet from Judah, the southern kingdom, during the uh, time of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. And he is uh, speaking largely to the people in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But in this section, he turns back to his own people on Mount Zion, also known as Jerusalem, and calls them out and says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and for those who feel secure on Mount Samaria, those who live too comfortably and are at ease with their wealth. Why? Because they are responsible for the suffering of the poor. In both respects of the word responsible. You see, responsible has a kind of reactive and a proactive approach to it. They are responsible for the poor in their area because the way that they got wealth was heavy taxes on the poor and taking advantage of them. And they are responsible for the poor because they are the ones with the power to do something about it. And so he's calling them out, as Amos does, because of their overindulgence. We see uh, in, in our passage today, verses 4 through 8, uh, what Old Testament scholars refer to as a marzia. And a marzia was a, an ancient Near Eastern pagan banquet of sorts, uh, in which there was just, well, lots of debauchery, um, lots, lots of uh, lewd activities. Um, <laughs> wasn't the prettiest sight, but also there's no way you could partake in a, uh, ma um, my goodness, a marzia unless you were extremely wealthy. Note, three elements of this feast show up here. Wealthy participants, religious cultic feasting, and excessive drinking. We start with the beds and couches adorned with ivory. Only the super rich can afford beds adorned with ivory. But also, this harkens back to the lewd activities that were going on. I won't dive into that right now. And we have all of the finest oils that are being noted in verse 6. These are the expensive stuff, the stuff that is, that is reserved for very sacred activities, and they're just kind of pouring it all over themselves. Everybody gets some oil, you know, like Oprah, just spreading it out over everybody. And then they're consuming the lamb and the calf. Meat was not very commonly eaten uh, in, in this society uh, because it was 
kind of difficult to come by, for one, and two, it was incredibly expensive. And primarily, the only place that you would have received meat was in some kind of religious or cultic uh, sacrifice that would have been going on. So that takes us to the religious uh, connotations of this uh, festival. And uh, then we have the musical improvis improvisations uh, that verse 5 talk about and uh, how they're able, to, they have such freedom about them that they're able to just improvise on the harp and even liken themselves to David. Oh, the arrogance, Amos says. And then, lastly, we see that they are drinking wine from bowls. Not glasses, bowls. This is even more ridiculous than, you know, if you just have the wine bottle and you're drinking out of the wine bottle. They're, they're, I mean, we're talking about bowls here, right? This is, this is a, a depiction of excess, of overindulgence. These people have so much wealth and so much free time and so much luxury and comfort. And they don't even see what's going on right outside their door. Complacency, luxuriousness, and hedonism, seeking that pleasure, have ended up protecting the nation's elite against feeling sickened by the downfall of their nation. You see, we see at the end of verse 6 that they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And Joseph is meant to be this broad-reaching term to say all of the people of God. And when he says that they are not grieved, that Hebrew word there is more accurately translated as sickened, to be disgusted by. And what we see in all of this is that their sin, at least in this particular passage, is not one of intentional mistreatment of the poor. It's not like they're going out there and, and stealing from them or, or, or uh, just completely putting them to shame. It's not something that's intentional, but rather it's that they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They are complacent, self-satisfied, and too apathetic to notice or mourn the plight of the oppressed. Ignorance is bliss. Let them eat cake. And so this is one reason why I'm very, uh, very much a person who's going to uh, agree with the statement, everything in moderation. Because what is truly needed in an excess uh, is an excess of compassion rather than material things. And in fact, our very denomination in the United Methodist Church is built actually structured upon an anti-materialism an anti campaign. John Wesley, the founder of modern-day uh, Methodism, uh, states that affluence tends to separate us from the poor and from God and the motivation for giving. Yes, it ends up being the super-rich who are less likely to give than the poor. And so, uh, uh, in his sermon, on the use of money, which ironically was written very closely to the time of the French Revolution, mind you, uh, in his sermon on the use of money, he points at West, John Wesley points out that we, we Methodists, may be a defense for the oppressed, a means of health 
to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain, that we may be as eyes to the blind, as feet to the lame, yea, a lifter up from the gates of death. And, he goes on, all the instructions which are necessary for this might re be reduced to three plain rules. Are you ready for this? Earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. John Wesley's rules for money, the use of money. And he begins with earn all you can. I mean, do we even need to be told that? <laughs> but he says this in the context of his sermon on the use of money, that we earn all we can as we're participating in God's healing and creative work in the world. It's not about earning all you can by whatever means. It's about earning all you can in the activity of God. Then he goes on to save all you can. And so in this statement, Wesley even challenges Rather than endorsing, he challenges accumulating and hoarding. Uh, he calls on Methodists to invest wisely and build large savings accounts. Uh, and, excuse me, I'm saying this backwards. As he was saying, save all you can, he was challenging them not to invest or to, uh, or to pour into large savings accounts, but rather to do not spend. Save all you can. Do not spend. And what are you going to do with your money if that's the case? Hold on to that for a moment. Uh, rather, he, he believed that the whole concept of saving all you can into a savings account or an investment account was compared to practices such as throwing your money into the sea. In this statement, save all you can, he calls us to a simplified lifestyle and a warning against extravagance. Wesley considered anything that we have that might be unnecessary. Consider that. Anything that we have that might be unnecessary as having been extracted from the blood of the poor. I've got a lot of unnecessary things, y'all that have been extracted from the blood of the poor. And so he asks us, are we willing to simplify our lives so that others may simply live? This is where he gets to the whole, if you're earning all you can, but you're not putting it into a savings or investment account, what are you doing with all this money? Well, most people like to ignore the last of the three rules. Give all you can. This third rule gives meaning to the first two. You're not earning all you can for yourself. You're earning all you can to make a difference in the world. You're not saving all you can for yourself. You're saving all you can that others might be saved and live another day. Giving for Wesley was rooted in the very nature and activity of God who is love. And that love can be seen as the emptying of oneself on behalf of others, the giving of life, abundant and full life. Love for God, Wesley notes, is inevitably involved in giving oneself to God and neighbor. One cannot love 
and fail to give. This past weekend, Kristen and I played a little game. And it's, uh, it's built on a practice in couples counseling called the Gottman Love Map. Just letting you know I didn't make this game up myself. And the Gottman Love Map asks you to answer a series of questions for your partner. Uh, so it might be something like, what's your partner's favorite color? And I would say, well, Kristen really favors teal, but right now she, she, her favorite color that's most appealing to her is purple. So I'm not letting her know what my favorite color is. I'm trying to answer for her. And the whole purpose of the practice is to see if you have enough cognitive space in your daily thinking for your partner. And one of the questions was, if your partner came up with $1,000 that they could spend freely on themselves, how would your partner spend that money? And uh, confession time. Kristen said, well, I think, that, uh, I think that you would probably spend it on whatever the latest gadget or technology is that's come out that you've been waiting for, uh, like the new uh, Apple Watch 8 that's coming out in September, the new AirPods Pro or something like that. And I, and I was thinking, I was like, oh, darn, that's right. And it's completely unnecessary. What do I need those things for? $1,000 could make an enormous difference in somebody else's life. And I'm over here thinking, I think I'll just get the latest version of the technology I already have. Genius. Writing this sermon has been incredibly challenging for me because I acknowledge that I am a fairly, maybe not necessarily excessively, but borderline excessively materialistic person. And so my challenge for us today as I've been trying to challenge us throughout this entire series, is something very practical that I'm going to give you a, an actionable step to do. And I'm going to be doing it myself because I acknowledge that I need to do this. And that challenge is to give away your excess. And here's how we're going to do it. Not just a trash bag. I want to give each and every one of you One of these. I want you to take it home with you and uh, peruse through your things. And I had to get the big ones, didn't I? I did have to get the big ones. And I want you to find what you have in excess. What you don't need. The things that you just have because, well, you have them. Maybe you feel like you need them. And let's see if we can put them in these bags. And uh, I'll, I'll let you know. I'm going to give you some grace. You don't have to fill it. What's that? Yes. You, so I will say, you don't have to fill this up. If you don't have that much in excess, that's all right. If you can fill this up, excellent. Uh, and once you fill these up, I'll, I'll give you three options here. When you fill these up, option one, take it to open doors. That's a United Methodist group that we sponsor here in Mobile that supports uh, those in need. Option two, bring it up here to the church and I will take it to open doors for you. If you don't have the opportunity to get to open doors, that's perfectly fine. I will get there for you. Option three, if you can't bring it up to the church, if you can't bring it up to the church, 
Ooh, very cool. Well, I'll give you just one bag then. Nice. Yes. <laughs> it's supposed to be painful. Uh, but, so option three, if you can't bring it up to the church and you can't get it to open doors, give me a call. I'll come pick it up for you and I will take it to open doors. And my incentive for you doing this, as I've started to promise on uh, day one of this sermon series, is that um, if you do this, if you, if you do it yourself, just send me like a picture of you doing it or, I don't know, the receipt or whatever. Uh, that'd be awesome. Uh, but if I get it from you, that'd be just as fine as well. And if I acknowledge you doing this, I'm giving you some famous Amos cookies. That's my invitation. And here's the thing about giving to open doors. Even though this is a trash bag, it's just a trash bag because boxes are much harder to come by right now. I would have given you a box. This isn't for your trash. This isn't for the stuff that you've just been keeping around the house because you haven't made it to the trash can yet. That, you know, one shoe that's missing its other pair. You want two or one? Nice. Uh, this isn't for, the th for that uh, piece of clothes, clothing that uh, you accidentally got bleach all over that one time and so you don't wear it anymore. This is for your good stuff that you don't need, that you hold on to in excess. This is for that stuff that somebody else can actually use to thrive and grow in life. This is for that stuff that can make a difference in somebody else's life. And here's the thing. We all have ex excess. We might not all be hoarders. I probably come pretty close at times with certain things. I used to like hoard cables and cords that went to all kinds of stuff. I have no idea why I did it, but I felt like it was useful. Sometimes it did become useful. Uh, we all have stuff in excess that we're just holding on to because we've been told this is what we need. But Amos, being the mouthpiece of God, calls us to give out of our excess to the needs of others. Wesley, the founder of modern day Methodism, challenged Methodists in his age and in today's age that anything you have in excess was bought with the blood of the poor. Perhaps we can make a difference. That's what Amos has been calling us to. I'm gonna use this one since I've already opened it earlier. So, anytime this week, or next Sunday. Um, I won't be in town until Wednesday, so if you need me to come pick it up, just know I won't be able to get there until after Wednesday, but I will come and pick it up for you. And we'll take it to open doors, and we're going to support this United Methodist ministry here in our community as a direct opposition to the societal pressures of materialism that have existed for thousands of years because we know we don't need all of the excess that we have accumulated. But somebody does. Let us pray.